Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is On The Grid, powered by theracetalk.com on mypodcasthouse.com. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of On The Grid here on mypodcasthouse.com or on the radio show Limited's RS1. Thank you so much for joining us for what promises to be another big week of motor racing, especially here in Australia as the supercars head back on track. The first of two consecutive weekends up at Darwin's Hidden Valley. They'll race this weekend and confirmation also yesterday that the second weekend of racing will be on the weekend. There was talk that it possibly could have been midweek racing, but we'll find out and discuss as to why that's not the case. A weekend of racing the second weekend around. Then the cars will pack up and make their way over to Townsville and we'll have four consecutive weekends of racing in a row of supercars. Bit NASCAR-like, isn't it? It'll be uh, great to see and we'll discuss that more later on with Richard Crail and Dale Rogers as well as have a look at uh, what happened in Formula One on the weekend over at Silverstone. A new segment this week. Won't be one we'll do every week, but we'll throw one in every now and then where we'll bring in Mark Walker as well. So the four of us are going to have a look at our top five favourite Australian racing cars. There'll be some surprises in there, I have no doubt, and it'll be interesting to see how many double-ups we have as well. All that to come, but let's kick off our news with Formula One. Max Verstappen claiming his first win of the Formula One season at the 70th anniversary British Grand Prix at Silverstone. Shrewd tyre management from Red Bull saw Verstappen win the race from fourth on the grid ahead of Mercedes Pierre Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas. Post-race, Verstappen was keen to downplay the victory, stating there's still a long way to go to challenge the Mercedes this season. But yeah, no, there won't be that many races that you will be running such soft tyres. So um, yeah, I wouldn't say, let's say we were back in the fight. I think we have to still be realistic, but we can enjoy today because today was a great day. Bottas claimed Mercedes was sleeping as he failed to convert pole position for the second time in three years at Silverstone. Bottas was left particularly frustrated when teammate Hamilton passed him with two laps remaining and wasn't happy with the directions given by his team. You know, the, when Max stopped, uh, you know, I think if I knew to push harder earlier, we could have kept the track position. Um, and then for me, the second stint was too short last stint too too long so um yeah i couldn't manage with it with the tires at the end so uh, i think on that lewis had the upper hand with the strategy this disappointing result coming in the same week that bottas committed to mercedes for the 2021 season team boss toto wolf downplayed the remarks stating red bull simply had the faster car on the day Formula One boss Chase Carey has revealed he's close to finalising the 2021 calendar and is expecting to revert to the normal 22 race schedule. Carey telling the Wall Street analyst the provisional schedule has been held back as some 2020 races are still under discussion and that no new events are expected next year. 
One nation that is no certainty to feature at this stage is Brazil, with the current contract with Interlagos expiring in 2020. Supercars leader Scott McLaughlin will be looking to retain his status as the only winner of the Darwin Triple Crown when racing returns to Hidden Valley this weekend. McLaughlin last year became the first driver to win the Triple Crown by qualifying fastest in the top 10 shootout before winning both races. McLaughlin leads Jamie Wincup and Chas Mostert in the Drivers' Championship. Wincup says he's confident his team can challenge the Shell V-Power Racing team this weekend. Yeah, so we were certainly happy with the podium last year, but it um, certainly wasn't the top step of the podium. The, the other guys uh, were, were very, very fast. So we're, we're quietly confident we can do a good job, but it's just all going to come down to putting the right tyre on at the right time and then bolting when you need to bolt. And while Wincup was part of the group of drivers and team members who were forced into isolation on arrival at Darwin, he said he was pretty happy when they were released from their hotel rooms. We, we couldn't believe how fast it, uh, it, it, it got changed. Um, there was a, a text message come through that it, it, uh, from 3pm on that, I think it was a Friday afternoon, um, it, it had been lifted. But we all expected a couple of days more of isolation before it actually all got sorted out. But um, we were actually released. I was listening through the door. I could hear the uh, the security guard outside the door. Heard on the radio, uh, let, let let everyone out, and then obviously we all got to have our rooms. And there were high fives all around, and uh, it was uh, gee, it was like we won the lotto. Supercars announcing the delayed transporter parade in Darwin will go ahead this Thursday ahead of this weekend's racing. Originally scheduled for August the sixth, the parade was laid uh, low by logistical challenges early in the week. It will now run along its original route. However, will not stop in the Darwin CBD due to the COVID-19 restrictions. Gary Jacobson has lauded Supercar's recent rule changes regarding tyre allocations, stating a more democratic sport with varied results will keep more fans happy across the board. Under the new rules, teams are restricted to just five sets of tyres across all qualifying, the top 15 shootout, and three races. Jacobson has already been the beneficiary of the new rules, finishing a career-high seventh in race 11 at last month's Sydney Super Sprint event. Townsville's Reed Park will host back-to-back -back weekends of supercar action for the first time at the end of the month. The first event to be held on the 29th and 30th of August will be known as the NTI Townsville Super Sprint. The second event will run on the 5th and 6th of September. Fans will be permitted to attend all race days with tickets on sale from this Friday. South African Brad Binder has taken out a shock maiden MotoGP victory at Berno in just his third Premier Class race. The win was also a first for his Austrian manufacturer team, KTM, who have been racing in Premier Class since 2017. Binder finished ahead of Franco Morbidelli and Johan Zarco and was beaming after the race. Today was the most incredible day of my life so far. Um, it's that day I've dreamt of since I was a child, and gosh, to, for it to come true in my third Grand Prix is scary. I, honestly, I can't believe it. It's been from the day starting in Red Bull Rookies Cup. It's just been a, a consistent grind trying to get here. And, uh, you know, I came through all the class of Red Bull KTM, and here we are on top, and we finally won in MotoGP. MotoGP have confirmed the final race of 2020 will take place in Portugal with the Algarve circuit in Portimao hoping to host 30,000 fans in November. It was announced last week's flyaway events in Malaysia, Thailand and Argentina 
had been cancelled due to COVID-19, but that a 14th round in Europe will be organised. The event will be the first Portuguese Grand Prix since 2012 and will occur a month after the Formula One race at the same track. Kevin Harvick has taken out his sixth NAS Cup victory of the season, sweeping the Michigan doubleheader. It was Harvick's third consecutive Michigan crown, drawing him level with Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace on 55 career wins. With four rounds remaining before the top 16 driver playoff, Harvick leads the field for wins, playoff points and regular season points. IndyCar and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway have released a 33-car entry list for the 104th edition of the Indy 500, which will take place three months after it was initially scheduled. The lineup includes 15 US-born drivers as well as 18 internationals, while the engine split will see 17 Chevrolets and 16 Hondas. That's the news. Let's head straight into the show. This is On The Grid on mypodcasthouse.com. All right, let's kick off the program today with Richard Crail from theracetalk.com. Hello, Crailsey. Hello, Shebexter. How are you? All the better for speaking to you as well, my friend. I have a beautiful glass of uh, red from the Limestone Coast. Really? What about yourself? Oh, down south. Well, actually, I'm on uh, one from... uh, The grapes uh, live four minutes from my office house. Uh, and the wine, it unfortunately, made a bit further away, six minutes uh, no. away, yeah, from, from Race Talk Central here in the beautiful Barossa Valley. Is there a quality issue with that two-minute gap? No, no, actually, okay. I just it allows the grapes a little bit more time to mature yeah. as they uh, go along. No, it's uh, cold, wet and rainy in winter, so uh, a glass of Shiraz whilst podcasting seems like the way to go. Yeah, it certainly does. And Dale Rogers, where do we, uh, where do you, do you get your Pepsi Cola from? <laughs> it's a twenty twenty, uh, <laughs> as I can tell. It's a Shocking little, vintage. It's a little bit young <laughs> at the moment. That's all I've got. A deep dark. Tony and Rich, nice to see you both. Nice to see you too. Uh, as things have been happening in supercars over the last few weeks, we sort of learn more and more each day and until around about an hour and a half before the start of this podcast, yeah. we had no idea what was happening next week in Darwin, but now we do. We've got lucky Shebeks. Last week, for those that might have missed it, you can go back and listen to the show and it will actually sound reasonably coherent because we had to re-record all of this segment last week because after we record it, we record on a Tuesday night. After we record it, all of the news completely changed it made with what no was sense. going on. Yeah, so we had to re-record the show. Fortunately, this week, um, the worlds and the stars have aligned and the schedules have come into cohesion. And we found out just before we pushed the red button that the supercars will, in fact, run on consecutive weekends still in Darwin, just delayed a week from where they were. So... This weekend will be the first, the Darwin Triple Crown, and then the weekend after Saturday, Sunday, the Darwin Super Sprint. So two weekends of racing, which will then lean into two further weekends of racing in Townsville. So four weeks, a month of supercars back to back to back to back, which is even Hawthorne didn't do that in their peak in the AFL. So it's terrific. Really excited about that process and how this has all come out. We'll come on to some of the issues around it later on in the show, but the news is that four straight weeks of supercars back-to-back weekends in Darwin, um, as was initially planned, it's just taken them a couple of extra weeks to get to that point. As supercars fans, Dale, we have no issues with four straight weeks of supercars, do we? 
No, it's it's a tough schedule though, Tony, because it's not as though they're sort of next door to each other. They're travelling from Darwin to Townsville, long haul. Um, unlike perhaps a, a NASCAR uh, team, it should send one truck to Townsville and one truck to Darwin. There is only one truck and it's got two cars in it. And uh, let's hope that they can get to Townsville without too much carnage. Um, Darwin normally throws up a few surprises. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's really on for the teams. And again, I think we've said it a number of times, you've got to take your hat off to these guys. They are working incredibly hard. You know, the Victorian guy has been away now for, uh, what's five or six weeks now? And it looks like it'll be two months. So, um, I think they reach and go racing, that's for sure, because there's been a lot of shots of guys sitting around pools in Northern Territory. But uh, uh, And they're two great tracks. I mean, we, we love Darwin, always love going there. The racing's always good there. And it's always great at Townsville. So I think it's going to be a fantastic uh, month of mayhem uh, for supercars. And uh, let's hope that uh, what we've seen so far with the, with the sprint races, the formats we've had, that we continue to get some mixed-up grids and some, uh, some new winners. The irony, Dale, is that, that we didn't really need this to happen anyway, because just a few days after last week's on the grid went to air, the NT government reversed their decision on the Sydney hotspot and, and declared yep. it to not be a hotspot or indeed the Brisbane hotspot, I should say, um, because they've had no community transmission of the virus up there. So um, McLaughlin, Deep Pasquale, Pi and Triple Eight, the teams that were in quarantine were released. So they were out and about on Saturday, probably could have gone racing, but, they're going to be overly precautious, of course, in these times. So that's why that happened. But um, yeah, look, it's interesting that we'll get to some of the, the pitfalls down the road. And, and personally, I think there's an opportunity lost in all of this. And we'll talk about the travel stuff as well. But the four weeks straight for mine is really, really interesting. And as someone who watches the TV ratings very closely, the social media interactions, the press around the sport, this is uncharted territory for supercars. This is an opportunity for them to be like football, to be like NASCAR, to be like all the major sports that play week in, week out. Supercars is used to racing once every two weeks, every three weeks. Sometimes there's a month between events. This is an opportunity to have four straight weekends of racing, bang, 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 and really build some momentum behind this year's championship, which has been a bit stop-start. We had the return to racing at Sydney Motorsport Park, then a will they, won't they with Winton. And then it went back to Sydney and that was all a bit stuttery. And there's been a couple of weeks since then where things have had to be reshuffled and we lost a week with what went on last week in the Territory. So this is great. It's a chance to get some momentum. And the other thing, Shebex, I really am interested to see is if this vaunted doubleheader at Queensland Raceway goes ahead in mm. mid-September, we're going to have eight weeks of supercars, uh, six weeks of supercars, I should say, in eight weeks leading into the Super Chip Auto Bathurst 1000 in October. And there could not be a better possible lead-in from a TV ratings perspective, given we're not going to sell many tickets, um, leading into the biggest race of the year and the most important race for TV in Australian motor racing. So that's a huge bonus and it's really exciting. Um, to work around the pitfalls is going to require some challenges and that travel, which we'll come to in a minute, is a big story and there are others as well. But I'm excited about this relentless pace that we're going to have and just to see how that really plays out no you're right it's going to be fantastic especially if we do have the double header weekend at qr which still obviously is under negotiation with motorsport australia and supercars in regards to the safety features at that track and how that's going to play out and hopefully uh minds will come to some sort of conclusion that you know this has to happen and let's just make it happen and mm. uh, that's fingers crossed that uh, common sense 
prevails in that regard. But you're probably right, Richard. The, the biggest threat, threat's probably not the right word, but the biggest thing that is probably behind all this for all the teams and the drivers is that travel break between Darwin and Townsville. And I know the teams would be absolutely packing it, I reckon, because if you have to use a well-used race talk uh, word, munted your car <laughs> in the final race at Darwin on the Sunday, mm. effectively that car needs to be thrown straight into the truck because it's got a three-day trip ahead of it to get to Townsville. And then you've got probably the best part of two days to work on that car when it gets to Townsville. It's not ideal preparations, Dale. No, it's not. Just and also to Richard's point, I mean, I think the sport has been saying for, for many, many years that, uh, you know, getting itself in a position where it can constantly be on this media cycle has been a huge issue for the sport. This is thrown it at it like like no tomorrow, but uh, and it will be will be fascinating to see. Uh, the, you know, all media are actually have been picking it up. You see, even on on these on seven, um, even the sunrise, it's on the pull throughs. Uh, you know, there's, there is the media actually coverage so far for the championship in this weird year we're in. I think it's been extraordinarily good, and obviously the relationship with News Limited is, is paying dividends as well. But so just on that, Dale, the, just the, on that very quickly, you you did write about sunrise. I do watch a bit of that in the morning. And they've had a fair bit of supercars coverage mm. on the Seven Network, which for me just plays nicely to a build-up. It's almost like they're going for the. It's almost like they're going for the TV rights, Shebex. You think. would. You would. Who would have thought that was the case? <laughs> but I look, I think the landscape overall, even if you look at Nine and the ABC and everything, I think supercars has, has in this in this period because it is a sport that's come back. It's come back full bore. You know, the championship is a real championship, and I think it's been picked up by a lot of media outlets that haven't been. So this gives it the ideal platform now to really punch it forward all the way up to Bathurst. And, uh, you know, we said a few weeks ago, Rich, that uh, it looked like that Bathurst could well be the last round. I think we, we spoke about that nearly three or four weeks ago. And uh, if this is the run-up to it, uh, it, it is a very, very strong series for both, you know, the sport, the sponsors particularly, uh, and the media. Yeah, so one of the challenges that we touched on for this double header is the the time to get to Townsville. And we have quite an international audience that listens to this show that might not grasp how bloody big Australia is. So the flight from Darwin to Townsville is two hours and 40 minutes, which is a long way. But for a truckie to drive, it's from the Hidden Valley Raceway circuit to the Reed Park Street circuit in Townsville is 2,496 kilometres. So well, I've actually got a 2,503 on my map, so I don't know which way you've gone. Well, are you turning uh, left at Daly Waters, or are you going down a little bit further and then crossing? Oh, I think I went down the hill and down the gutter. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah. So e- either way, it's 2,500 Ks. It's 26 hours of driving, and with the strict rules around truck drivers and the amount of time they can do in the seat at any one time, it's a three-day journey for them to complete that distance. So best case... They get everything packed up and they get out of Hidden Valley on Sunday night. Cars don't arrive until Wednesday afternoon in Townsville. Racing starts Saturday morning on track in Townsville. So if you leave Darwin 2 with a damage bill and work to do on the cars, or if you're in Kelly Racing situation where they're having to rebuild engines for their entire fleet because they found a, a fundamentally failed component in one of those you know, engines that they had to replace in all of them, you're going to be pushing it uphill 
to get things on track for Saturday in Townsville, having left Darwin just a few days earlier. And just to put that in perspective, because I, I, I take your point, it is actually driving from London to Moscow. Yes. There you yeah, go. Correct. So that is one hell of a trip. That is a hell of a trip. Bit wet on the way, of course, but uh, <laughs> uh, nonetheless, you know, internationally, you just get the grasp of, of how long it is. And it's not an easy trip. So, uh, yeah, if, if, I mean, there's no question that when the teams do arrive, There'll be, there'll be assistance, there'll be places for the cars to be prepped. They'll probably go straight to the garage and prep them. But, yeah. my God, if you've got a bent car, you're going to have some, some work. But uh, um, it's not just that. It's the fatigue on the cruise as well. You know, uh, these guys normally do not do this turn. Um, and, and they are going to be... Uh, so, look for, you know, crews. If, they, if they've got an all, you know, a big couple of days to get the cars right, pit stops come into play. You've, you know, they've all got to be... Uh, the well-oiled machine come race day. So it's a very tough schedule, but I think one that um, without doubt we're looking forward to seeing. It may be a very tough schedule coming up, but I tell you what, the schedule for supercar drivers and the teams hasn't been any easier than it has been in the last week and a half. Sunning it up in Darwin, around pools, kakadu, feeding crocodiles, doing all this sort of stuff. It's been a Pretty amazing time, I would have thought, for most of these guys heading into this first weekend. Yeah. Like, a little bit like lockdown, really. Yeah. <laughs> is it? Yes, is exactly. It? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, lockdown must be amazing for you guys I've in got, Melbourne. I've got two crocodiles in my lounge room as we speak. <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, they'd all rather be racing this weekend, there's no doubt. but that Or last weekend, there's no doubt. But, um, yeah, make the most of the top end while you can and give them a bit of social media love uh, gallivanting around the place. Why not? Um, I'm pretty jealous of them when it was six degrees all day Friday last week and I was getting messages from a uh, friend of the show, Matt Nolte, who's up there to do some commentary and uh, yeah. he was sunning himself by the pool in 32C. So, um, yeah, they can all get stuff as far as I'm concerned. And Richard, really, <laughs> is the best Nolts could come up with, what Knuckles could come up with, was going to um, uh, the Old Breath. Was that as good as he got in, in Darwin? Yeah, see, there are a lot of great little local cafes in Darwin that he could have done much better with. Yeah, pretty pretty disappointed to go to the chain when he could have supported local business in a time when they need it. Yeah, yeah, correct. Hey, you mentioned before, Richard, the missed opportunity. Yeah, I, I was going to get cars for that midweek race. So what it does now is, from from an AFL perspective, in regards to what's happening at the NT. It gave supercars pretty much a, a clear run that Tuesday and Wednesday because there was no other sport mm. really around Australia on those two afternoons into twilight. What it's done, though, is it's thrown into a situation where now supercars is coming up against an NT government election on that same day and an AFL game, which is Richmond versus Essendon, mm. which is always built at the MCG as a, a, a history, a, a celebration of our Indigenous talent. It's a dream time at the G game normally. It's going to be the dream time in the NT game that weekend. So it's going to take a gloss, I would have thought, out of that first day of the second weekend. Uh, Yeah, probably will. I'm not so concerned about that because I think it can stand on its own against everything going on. And from a local Darwin point of view, they're limited to 4,500 people at the supercars anyway with the COVID rules. So it's not like there's... 30,000 people going to that and then trying to vote and then trying to go to the footy that night as well. So I don't think that's a massive drama. I'm just a little frustrated that 
the, the opportunity has been missed to not attempt some midweek racing. Yeah. Um, and, and whether this has come from supercars, who I understand have pushed pretty hard to try and get this over the line. And I, I know that the Northern Territory government were very, very keen for it. And, and that was their preference, especially to avoid these clashes on Saturday. Um, it may have been a broadcaster thing. They may have not wanted clashes against football, all the flagship football shows that are on every night of the week on Fox Sports. That that may be a, a reason for not wanting this to go ahead. But my understanding was there was quite a desire from supercars and uh, the NT government for that to be a thing. So it's been kiboshed somewhere and that, that's a fact and that's unfortunate. But yeah, it, it's really frustrating because we've been very consistent about one thing, if we've been consistent about anything on this show, which isn't much, it's that we all want to see midweek racing given a crack. At least have a try. Try it one week and see what happens. And there's no better opportunity than now to give this a shot. And it's just slightly frustrating for mine that it's been shot down and we're not having that opportunity of a Wednesday night race or a Wednesday twilight race. And I think the argument from a TV point of view doesn't stack up because with being in the winter months and a lack of daylight saving at the moment, the race will be finished by 6.30 PM Eastern time, regardless, because it's dark and Darwin doesn't have permanent circuit lighting. So you'd have to run in the twilight race. would start at say five o'clock run till 5.45, 5.50 PM, which is 6.20 PM Eastern States time where all the TV ratings are, that would have worked a treat and it wouldn't have clashed with anything. And I think it would have done quite well. So a little bit frustrating, I understand the reasoning, but it would have been so cool to see them have a crack. And I just, part of me feels like we've missed a window, missed an opportunity to try something different, which could pay off in the long term in the future for the sport. Yep, agreed. Well, we'll see if, uh, if anything happens down the track, but I doubt it. I think that was probably the, the prime opportunity for them to get that midweek in. I wouldn't have thought they were going to do two or a midweek at Queensland Raceway. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, anyway, it don't matter. Anyway, it's going to be a big weekend of racing. We know that. And we finally get underway. Uh, one bloke's been pretty powerful there over the last couple of years, hasn't he? Well, he did. He's the first bloke to ever win the Triple Crown. And, uh, you know, defending the Triple Crown is something we haven't seen since the very, very first you know, race some 20-odd years ago. So, uh, McLaughlin's in great form. And uh, those cars will be, will be super quick there again. So, expect the battle at the front. It's always the ones that we think are going to just knock on the door, whether it's whether it's WAU, whether it's Penrite Racing, uh, there's, or, and obviously Tickford. So um, you know, I think that there's there's no question that 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 battle at the top is going to be uh, good. This is a track you can pass on too, which I think is fantastic. You know, that long straight into the turn one. This place offers passing opportunities. It offers great slipstream opportunities down the straights, um, and we have seen you know cars move up and down the uh, the order. Whether the format lends itself to Darwin is yet to be seen. Uh, but, but I think, you know, you, you've got to think that those that the Triple Eight and uh, DJ Team Penske guys will set the pace. But there'll be some interlopers here for sure. Dave Reynolds has got a great track record at Hidden Valley, doesn't he? So he sort of right. pops out as perhaps the, um, perhaps the potential. But in the past, we've seen some different results there. Like Rick Kelly was on pole in the Nissan in 2017. And Michael Caruso always went really, really well there. Um, Rico got a pole again in 2018. So the Nissans always went well. So maybe Kelly Racing, who were in great form in Sydney last time out, maybe they pick up where they left off 
and have another really strong performance. Um, McLaughlin dominated last time out. Reynolds grabbed a pole in 2018, though, and grabbed a win in race two on the Sunday. So he's always been really, really fast there. Scott's won basically three of the last four at that venue, though. And as you mentioned, Dale, he, he won the Triple Crown last year. Interestingly enough, uh, they've announced that the Triple Crown will be awarded regardless this weekend. So in the past, the Triple Crown has been whoever gets pole yep. and then the winner of the two races. But this year with the change of format and the sprint race format compared to the two 200K races or a 120 and a 200, it's now the winner of the round. So the driver who gets the most points for the whole weekend will win the Triple Crown. So someone's going to win it regardless. Mm. Whereas from 1998, the first time they visited, it took until 2019 for someone to actually achieve pole and all the race wins in the weekend to get that triple crown. So it was a good record for supercars while it lasted, but someone will win it now and then a super sprint format. The other interesting thing, boys, to factor in for this weekend is the tyre rules, and we're operating under the same conditions as Sydney Motorsport Park last time out, which is a couple of sets of soft and a couple of sets of hard. So we'll have those alternating tyre battles over the course of the race, which will be really interesting. But the second event, the Crown Bet Super Sprint event will be soft tyres only. So we're getting a bit of a sample here to see what works better and what provides the best racing. And I will put money on the first weekend will provide more entertaining racing and more mixed up results than the second when everyone's got the same tools to work with. And of course, those stats were brought to you by the Race Talks Darwin Preview, which was held back from last week. Yes. Yeah, it's been sitting in the back end stewing for a week, but uh, Mark Walker's worked very hard on that. So we'll, we'll have that out on theracetalk.com in time for uh, the weekend. So feel free to check it out. An amazing story too coming out today about Kelly Racing's engines. Not sure whether you guys got a chance to see that. There was a story on speedcafe.com about the uh, engines having the wrong engine valves. And had they have raced last weekend... They would yeah, have had two over. days to do total rebuilds, but it's given them a few extra days to get that done. That could have been catastrophic for them. Yeah, Kelly's released a video on YouTube about that last week, Shebex, where they, they went through it and Todd Kelly, who's become a bit of a YouTube star, mm. explained what's going on um, and that they were going to have to rebuild their engines in the, in the pit lane in Darwin in time for this weekend. But yeah, the component floor with the lifters in those cars and they had to um, replace them all and get them sorted. So yeah, not, not ideal, but the the gap has probably helped them and taken that pressure off getting those engines bolted back together when they had to do the dash out of Brisbane, much in the same way they had to do the dash out of Melbourne a couple of months ago. They had to dash out of Brisbane and run across the border. So they're all good. Uh, has anyone seen Rick Kelly either? Cause last time we saw him, he was up in the Kakadu somewhere, I think with his camping trailer, but he's just MIA for a couple of weeks. He's living the life. Yep, uh, eating crocodile and all that sort of stuff. Hopefully not been eaten by. Uh, exactly right. <laughs> hey, Dale, just before we uh, wrap up this segment and head into our next segment, which is going to be a cracker, actually, and Mark Walker to join us for that as well, a quick uh, review of what happened on the weekend in F1. Uh, great to see Max Verstappen finally uh, take a victory off the Mercedes boys. Yeah, it was a great uh, victory for Verstappen and fabulous strategy too from Red Bull. Um, they called it beautifully. But the, there were two things happening on the uh, it, it Silverstone on the weekend. There was a race and there was politics. And uh, make no bones about it, uh, brake ducts have absolutely nothing to do with the protest 
this is all about constructors and what's the future for a constructor. Um, is a constructor a company that has to make their own car or is a constructor someone who can buy pretty well a car from someone else? There's no question that Racing Point is a, is a direct copy of the Mercedes 2019 car. Um, it has components on it that were non-listed parts for um, uh, in, in 18 and 19, um, now the listed parts. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, you saw Martin Brundle actually with one of the brake ducts in his hands. It's not actually the brake duct. It's actually what goes on behind it, the cooling. As I said, it fits over the wishbone. They bought the wishbone from Mercedes-Benz as well. The car is effectively a Mercedes-Benz car and it's bloody quick. So this is a long way to go. And I think that the other teams are watching Renault to see just exactly what would happen, whether the FIA would, would hold that protest, which they did uphold the protest, and they've jumped on board. So there's going to be a, a, a long appeal process. The car will run. I did read that, that and, and speaking to some of the guys in Europe, that this has actually been administered under French law, which is even more bizarre. It doesn't actually come under what we would normally do in, in what we would see as English law, if you will. So there are little caveats in the French law. So the car, if it's illegal, shouldn't be running. But the car's going to run as it is. Um, but the big battle now is to what Formula One looks like in the future. And let's not forget, Formula One is, 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 has a history of teams buying cars and going racing. This is not something that the constructor era is not Formula One's history. It's not the, since 1950. Frank Williams used to buy old cars and go racing. He's, he bought the Wolf team effectively. His first car was the FWO6. He'd had five cars before that that he'd bought from other constructors. But it's, it's the future they're looking at. And this whole protest is to try and work out with the new regs coming what Formula One looks like in the future. And it's a, it's a massive issue for them just to where they go. So lots of play on track, just back from quickly, brilliant strategy from uh, Verstappen. Um, they had Mercedes covered at every point, no matter what Mercedes did, they had an option to either pit or go long by using that hard tire. Uh, really, really clever strategy. Car was quick uh, on all tires, the Red Bull was quick. Um, and uh, we, you know, obviously we didn't see the, the, the tyre delamination we saw the week before, but uh, uh, I think Mercedes were, were head-scratching a bit because they, they were outplayed or outmanoeuvred on a chessboard by uh, Red Bull, and it was, it was a great win. Uh, other performances, Nico Holtenberg, just fantastic. You know, what, what a great performance for Nico, getting um, brilliant qualifying, getting up in the points. And uh, unfortunately for, for our man Dan, a shocker. Uh, second set of tyres, disaster. The car was not good. And um, he, after a great performance in qualifying, was, was P nowhere. So uh, some fascinating things, but a great race. I, the two races I actually thought were really, really good events. What a great circuit to watch those cars on. Really yeah. just stunning. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the race. I thought it was terrific. And again, it comes back to the tyre choice. So give everyone a tyre that's not good enough to do yeah. the job. It was, it was two shades too soft for those hot conditions. And we had an unbelievable motor race. People yeah. battling to hold on to their cars. Errors creeping in, mistakes, strategy games with two, everyone making at least two stops, if not three. Um, and anyone who tells me that Hulkenberg's last pit stop wasn't suspicious, I will shoot you down because there is every, uh, they 100% pitted him to drop him behind Lance Stroll in the finishing order of that race. And, and you will not convince me otherwise. No. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, as you boys know. But great race. The, the brake duck thing really irritates me. And Formula One, Ross Braun has this amazing vision for what these new regs in 22 are going to deliver. But Formula One has to get out of this mentality if it's going to be successful. And I could not care less about the brake ducts on each car. 
I could not care less that the Racing Point is a direct copy of last year's Mercedes. And if it was a decent copy, it would have been as fast as last year's Mercedes, but it isn't because it's still only the third fastest car. And even that in race conditions is debatable because they've been beaten by Charles Leclerc in a not very good Ferrari in every Grand Prix so far. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it really frustrates me. This is, a, as you mentioned, Dale, a really key moment for Formula One to work out what it wants to be. So you've got the technical exercise and, and I'm a, I'm a formula one buffer 30 years. And I, I would argue rake on a car or when they shifted to a high nose or the high cockpit sides or Adrian Newey's shrink wrap designs. I'll argue those until I'm blue in the face. I love that stuff about F1, but it's got to decide what it wants to be. And in my opinion, it's got to be more about the product than the technical arms race. And the product cannot be, a sport that allows or has regulations that allows for cars to be a second a lap faster than everybody else. I don't care how good a race team you are. There has to be that balance that allows the occasional upset. And MotoGP is probably the ultimate example of that in that you look at the, the race in the Czech Republic on the weekend, won brilliantly by Brad Binder, the Repsol Hondas, the factory Yamahas, they were nowhere. Yeah. Absolutely nowhere. Didn't get it right on the weekend. Didn't have the performance. Failed to perform. That doesn't happen in Formula One. Because even with rubbish tyre wear, the best car in Formula One still finished second and third in the race on the weekend. We want a Grand Prix that if you remove Max Verstappen and the two Mercs, we want what this season's been without them in the field, which is Renault, um, McLaren, Racing Point, Alpha Tauri, those guys all being hugely competitive and the midfield battle has been immense because they're all on similar levels of performance. That's what I, I want formula one to be. I love the technical side. I want them to keep that independence and everyone come up with their own solutions, but they've, they've got to move on from this puritanical everyone. The brake ducks are a massive issue because they ripped them off from the Mercedes move on from that. It's got to be about the competition and opening the sport up to more winners so it's more yeah. viable so more people can get involved. But love the race. Terrific and stuff. And hopefully it's scorching hot in Barcelona this weekend so they can have more of the same and the Mercs can trip up and we can perhaps get some more fun stuff happening. And more Kimi Raikkonen blow-ups to his team over the radio. Well, yeah, absolutely. More Alex Albon passing everybody around the outside. That was terrific. Yeah. I'd pay to watch that every weekend. Well, I do pay to watch that every weekend. Love that. Loved the midfield scrap. Loved Max Verstappen telling his team off when they told him, don't slow down, back off yeah. from the leaders. I'm not a grandmother. <laughs> the sport should never be in a place where it should tell someone to not overtake. Yeah, how good's that? And that hopefully the new rules fix that as well. So love or hate Max Verstappen, full credit to him having belief enough in his car and the team backing him to do that. And it just reminds you, I know a lot of Aussie fans don't like Red Bull because of the Ricardo and Weber thing. And I get that, but they are a bloody good race team. What a great race team to engineer that strategy and get themselves to the front and, and jag a win when they don't have the fastest car. So full appreciation for that. Really enjoyed the Grand Prix. And Crofty reminded us all about that on the weekend, didn't he? In a race where Mark Weber once said, not bad, <laughs> bad for, for a number second two. driver. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, let's take a break, boys. When we come back, Mark Walker will be with us for a very special session. This is On The Grid on mypodcasthouse.com. Welcome back. Final segment of On The Grid here this week. And we welcome Mark Walker with his racetalk.com t-shirt on. Hello, Mark. Shebexter, yeah, you got a merch. Merch represent. 
Crazy looking smick, but I don't know about the rest of you guys. Is there anywhere where I can buy my merch from? Well, we probably should get on that, shouldn't we, Shabazz? <laughs> we should probably probably investigate a shop. Let, let let us know at the race talk. If you're listening to this and you would buy merch, let us know. And if there's enough demand, I will go and spend the money to get some done and we can flog some merch. That would be oh, great. Good. Let us know at the race talk. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We'll put a post up and see if you reckon that's a thing. All right, now, we said that this is a very special segment. It was one that was brought up about three hours ago <laughs> due to the fact that we haven't been able to get a hold of any V8 supercar driver in Darwin because they're all busy doing a whole lot of stuff before they race this weekend. So we thought we need to fill in 20 minutes or so to give you guys a decent-length podcast. And Richard Crowell, please explain your idea. Well, I love, I'm a simple, simple man, Shebex, and I love a list. I exist on lists. I have lists of what to do when I get up in the morning, lists of what red wine I'm going to drink that night and so on and so forth. So I thought it would be fun given every single supercar team PR and driver are off gallivanting around the Northern Territory. We couldn't get any of them on the program. Their loss. Why don't we do something a little bit different? Now we've got broad spectrum of experience and background on this podcast between the four of us. Dale Rogers dates back to the 1800s. He can date back for miles in terms of his racing history. Mark Walker with a Queensland focus. Shebex just says it all, doesn't it? And me with whatever I like. So I thought it would be fun to find out our top five Australian racing cars of all time and just discuss them, bandy them around. And I reckon we're going to end up with 20 race cars in this chat. Why didn't you just make the list the five least popular team PR people? Oh, well, because, no, well, because we need to stay friends with them for some time oh, in the future. That, that would have gone too long, Mark. Bus. Okay, right. But we did, how many teams did we contact Shebex? Like three? Oh, no, no, four or five. <laughs> yeah, and none of them. They're all busy. So Oops. their loss. And even, APR, even when we're there, in a normal year, we contact them. I still don't want to talk to us. Top <laughs> 20 in the Apple Sporting Podcast last week, and they don't want to be involved. It's their loss. Yeah, it's their loss. Exactly. Their loss. Exactly. All right. So we're going to do this. We'll all name our fifth, and then our fourth, and then yep. our third best. Yep. All right. Well, you, Richard. You, you, no, you start, Chebex. You want me to start? Okay. Yeah, I do. I well, do. five was a tough one for me because I had a few cars that I could have thrown in at number five when I was writing my little list initially, but I ended up going for one that was really emotional to me from the point that if Greg Murphy provided us with a lap of the gods, that his racing team provided us with the car that gave us the road to heaven. And it was the VE Commodore of Jason Richards that he drove to victory in the second race of the Fujitsu series at the Clipsal 500 that year. Racing for Greg Murphy Racing, he had been diagnosed with cancer just four months before and it was the only race that he did for the 2011 season in supercars, of course, passing away in December that year. It was one of the most emotional finishes in motor racing that I could ever remember. And it'll be embedded in my mind forever. The red Commodore with the Tricor name on the bonnet, the King G on the bumper bar. And name the two drivers that he beat in that second race that year. Go on. Scott McLaughlin and Nick Perkett. Pretty good. So an amazing, so the car did nothing else. It didn't finish in the top 10 for the remainder of the year. I think uh, young James Brock was one of the drivers of that car for a few races. And there was someone else who jumped in there as well. But it'll just be remembered for me as being one of the greatest race cars 
for the emotional appeal that it gave on that day. Being in that Prince conference that day and hearing Jason talking about the cancer, it was the first time that we really had the chance to speak to him about it and stuff. It was just, yeah, an amazing day. So uh, number five for me, wow. the red VE Commodore of Jason Richards that he drove to victory in race two of the Fujitsu Series Clipsal 500 race. Well, you've put some work into this. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, I'm definitely not that prepared. No, I like that. Very nice. My number five is one from left field. And Dale Rogers quite literally was probably there. And I'm not having a crack at your age, Dale. Is the Elfin MR9. The only purpose-built Formula 5000 car in Australian history, potentially in the world. Every other 5000 was adapted from something, the Lolas or the Marches or whatever they might have been from Formula 1 cars or everything else. The MR9 was developed by Gary Cooper solely for Formula 5000. And it was the first and only crack at a ground effects car as well. So imagine 1980 through 83 for Formula 1 car. It looked just like that. I love the innovation. I love the fact it was built here in Adelaide. I love that it was just Aussie ingenuity. Love the fact they only built one because 5,000 was on the demise at that time. It was falling down. Mondial was about to step in and Formula Pacific as the preeminent open wheel category in Australia. As a Wings and Slicks fan, the MR9 up until more recently is the pinnacle of what can be done in Australia with Wings and Slicks racing. And if you put a Cosy in that, I reckon that car might have even qualified for it in the back of a Formula One field. It was advanced for its time. It never got the racing baptism of fire that it probably deserved, given what was going on in the sport at the time with F5000 being on the down rather than the up. Looks amazing. Fantastic in that iconic ANSET livery. Um, I only found out recently John Bow actually drove the car at Sandown. I'm keen to talk to him about it one day. Love that thing. That's my number five Aussie-made racing car. Mark Walker. Right. Now, you got me thinking, and I've, I might have just had a late change, because I was going to say Mustang oh. Sally. Oh. But then, see, I was going to say Mustang Sally, because it had 97 wins and six TCM titles, and that's pretty good. But mm. there are the TCM Mustangs out there, so it's not that unique. How about something unique? From Adelaide, John Bowspec, the Viscander. Oh, Yes. The Viscander C1, it's along the very similar lines to what you just talked about. 14 races, 10 wins, and it got John Bauer, the sports car championship in 1986. Still going around with uh, Paul Stubber these days. Absolute horn piece of kit. It sounds great, looks great. Mm. And, you know, it, it raced in the world championship race there at Sandown back yeah. in the day with Dick Johnson and all that sort of caper. So uh, I love that car. And, you know, I'm sorry, Mustang Sally, but you just got outed there in the last eight seconds before I've opened my mouth. So, sorry about that. Dale? Uh, yes, just on that uh, Elfin MR9, I, I did see that car, and uh, Gary Cooper actually had it entered the 1980 Australian Grand Prix, uh, where Alan Jones brought the Williams over and Bruno Giacomelli in the Alpha, and uh, it didn't qualify, it didn't practice it. He actually entered it, but didn't race it. Um, but, yeah, beautiful car. Um, isn't it interesting? Locally built cars. My number five is Frank Madich's Madich SR4. Uh, set the ultimate standards in sports car racing in Australia. Came from, not surprisingly, his SR3, which was a beautiful uh, bit of kit, which, which was powered by a 4.4 litre Repco V8 engine. He took it to the US, the SR3, and raced there. The SR4 uh, was built in 69 uh, with a, a beautiful quad cam Repco 740 V8. It dominated the, the inaugural Australian Sports Car Championship that year. 
um, and was ran in, in a number of configurations. The beautiful blue Rothmans uh, signage on it. Am I allowed to say Rothmans on this? Yep. Yeah, I'm going to say um, Marlboro. It's still running it, so yeah. It ran a combination of, 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 of no wings, high wings and low wings. And Matic was his, at his absolute best in this car. It was a beautiful piece of Australian construction, just as the other number fives, uh, other than the Commodore, which I suppose wasn't Australian, but, but it was interesting. Three stunning Australian built and designed cars. But the Matic SR4, my number five. Magic. Beautiful stuff, Dale. Let's go to number four. And my number four was, I've sort of, and I'm going to give myself just a little bit of a uh, clarification here. My... <laughs> My, my real history with Australian cars is with supercars only. Uh-huh. I, I don't have the, the, the Formula 4, the, the background that you guys have had with motor racing. So predominantly all of my work has been done with supercars. And before that, I was very much an F1 man. So I don't have that ground and that wide experience of... So a lot of, all of my cars were all supercars. And my number four is Marcus Ambrose's AU Falcon from 2001. Now, I could have picked the BA Falcon that won 20 of his 28 supercar wins and gave the Tasmanian two championships. But that car never did anything special at Bathurst. And for me, Bathurst is the pinnacle, as Dale holds it up, of all cars. The AU did give us something special at Bathurst. It gave us Marcus, Marcus's pole in his very first drive at Bathurst as a rookie in 2001. It also gave him pole at Queensland Raceway, the GP, and Eastern Queek. Eastern Queek? Queek. Queek. <laughs> and it won him the round at the Gold Coast, all in his very first supercar year. So hats off. Congratulations to Stone Brothers on the making of that beautiful AU Falcon with the lovely Pertec colours going through it for Marcus Ambrose back in 2001. I like it. Excellent. Probably the most successful AU Falcon. It was a pretty rubbish supercar, but yeah, uh, Marcus certainly got the most out of it. Right. My number four is ultra modern, and it's a car that's only done in its life six races, and it's the S5000. This is, for me, the future of our sport in Australia, and definitely Beautiful. in open wheel racing. And it represents, for mine, the very best of what this country has got to give from an engineering point of view. And the cars that we've already talked about, Vescanda, the famous K&A engineering, the Matic and Frank Matic and his remarkable exploits, and the Elfin as well. I think the S5000 represents a similar sort of effort in a very modern world of carbon fibre and aluminium construction and um, engines and things like that. I love the fact that the chassis has been adapted to suit the local conditions. I love the fact that Orica and Crawford, who built the cars in the States and in Europe, have adapted it to suit the uh, Illuminator Ford V8 engine. I love the fact that we've developed the package here. It runs a local Hollinger engineered gearbox, paddle shift gearbox, locally developed front and rear suspension, the wishbones, the crash structures have been influenced by the way they go racing here. So much Aussie impact for a car that has globally significant ramifications, performance and safety features that are as good as FIA Formula 2, Formula 3 and top open wheel categories around the world. Since the very peak of Formula Holden and perhaps the peak of F3, Australia's been crying out for a top-level wings and slicks formula of its own. And I think S5000 is going to deliver that. Hand on heart, I'm already involved. I'm going to be calling it at some point if we ever go back racing again. So there is an investment from my point there as well. But 
the moment I saw that first car roll out and run at Sydney Motorsport Park almost five years ago now, Chris Lambden and his team had put together, it, it just grabbed me straight away as a modern variation of the history of our sport. So for mine, fourth place, S5000, Ford V8 powered, carbon fiber open wheeler, big wings, big fat tires, 400 or 560 horsepower. Sign me up right now, Mark. They have already. Right. Yeah, well, they have, yes, true. <laughs> and you've got three spaces left for Formula 3 cars to come. So that's, that's no, good. No. <laughs> good on you, Rich. <laughs> Uh, Not one features. I I like these bespoke sort of things. I like reasonably bespoke cars. I like sports sedans. Mm. I don't think there's a better sports sedan in Australia than the Ricciardello. Ten time. Uh, Alfetta GDV. Uh, 11 titles, 133 race wins. Absolute pure horn. I mean, you could throw any number of sports stands into that argument, but the sheer fact that the numbers behind this car are ridiculous, I think just puts it in a, a leg of its own there at number four for me. Good Great. get. Uh, yeah, my number four is a car, and Richard, I have seen this one too, so I'm, uh, I'm going well tonight. Um, in 1981, there was a bloke from Queensland who set out to pay back... Uh, Australia after crunching a car into a rock at Bathurst um, with 70,000 bucks from um, the public and 70,000 bucks from Ford. He built a brand new XD uh, True Blue Falcon and committed to take that car around to Australia and win the Australian Touring Car Championship, which he did in an absolute epic finale at uh, Lakeside with Peter Brock. Uh, the photos of that event, uh, the aerial photos you see, uh, there are people in Brisbane trying to get into the joint. It was just one of those days. Having spoken to Dick about this, he said one of the things they'd never done, they'd never been to Perth. They'd never travelled that, that far. This was, a, this was an adventure for them. Um, they had the truck. He and Dino and I think KC were on board. They slept in the truck. They went and paid the public back at every race meeting they went to. A magnificent car and fittingly won in that very last battle of the race. So for, for me, the uh, 1981 uh, Falcon XD True Blue. Beautiful story, that. Uh, eight cars, eight cars. No, yeah, yeah, no, no, we're, we're, yeah. We're, no repeats yet. No repeats yet. No. Number three for me was a more modern car, and it was the 2018 ZB Commodore of Craig Lowndes, which he shared with Steve Richards at record for the race record at Bathurst of six hours and one minute, nearly the first car to go outside of the six-hour mark. So it was quicker than the Brock LJ Tirana, which might get a mention in my top two. And it did it in 31 more laps than that LJ Tirana of back in 1971, which is amazing. Uh, I remember that car as well in its final race trip at Newcastle, which was Craig Lowndes' last race as a full-time driver in supercars. And it had that gold camo sort of autobahn look about it. It was a, a pretty good looking car. It took him to fourth of the championship in that final year, so it carried an old bloke pretty much over the line, and it had a win at Simmons Plains, and also his seventh Bathurst that year as well. So, a lot of my stuff's been tied up around emotion this year, and watching that car do what it did that year at Bathurst in the time that it did it, admittedly we didn't have, I think we had what, one safety car was it? Or something mm -hmm. for, the, for the whole race, so that probably helped 
the time a fair bit, but still you've got to get there and you've got to do it. And they did it. So the Lounge Richard ZB Commodore of 2018 gets number three for me. Cracking motor race. Um, I, my heart went in my mouth a little bit when Mark mentioned sports sedans just before, <gasps> but I was very pleased that he put the Ricky Dello car. Now I argued with myself for an hour earlier today in deciding this list and the Ricky Dello car was my sixth most favorite car, but the Ricky Dello Alpha's direct rival for more than a decade is my number three car. And that's the John Goulet Audi A4 sports sedan. That is one of my most special race cars I've ever seen race in person. Audi A4, so early or late 1990s body shape Audi A4 with a massive flares, carbon fiber body, low to the ground, massive six liter Chev V8 under the bonnet, 750 plus horsepower and driven by Darren Hossack, who remains one of the more underrated champion race car drivers of our generation, at least in the sport. And that, it was an amazing car and it took the fight up to Riccadello and his family run team and that dominant Alfa Romeo. And there was a period between 2007 and 2012, 13, where they had some of the best motor races that no one's ever watched because they weren't on TV they went live streamed. They were just those two guys, a class above the field in the fastest tin tops in the country. And at their peak, those cars were three seconds a lap quicker on some circuits than a supercar bashing doors wheel to wheel and there was a race and mark you were there at queensland raceway where they were wheel to wheel for three laps straight more or less swapping position over and under and doing 106s at that joint which was just awesome but the thing that grabbed me most about that audi a4 and still does to this day when i hear it and it's still running was the sound and i'll forever remember a wet cold day at malala raceway Darren Hossack in a practice session on Friday evening. It's dark. It's pouring with rain. And he's accelerating out of the northern hairpin, which is a 50k an hour right-hand corner. And I'm standing on the other side of the circuit, a kilometre away. And you can hear this car. It's the only car on track echoing around the vacant spectator mounds. And there's wheel spin in first, second, third, fourth, fifth. And then he grabs sixth just before the breaking point at turn seven. And it bursts into wheel spin again and it's echoing <laughs> around this place. And that will stay with me forever. It's number three on my list. Mark Walker. Expanding on that, uh, great pick. Love it. I'm, I'm on board with that. I think the best sounding sports sedan of all time was Bernie Gillen's Mustang. Yes. I, remember, I remember sitting on Friday afternoon in the top of the control tower up in the commentary box there. And he was out in the track by himself going down the back straight in his outlap. And it was like that scene at Jurassic Park where the the cup of water starts shaking. The, the whole, everything's just shaking. And the car's about 600 metres away. That mm. was the most ridiculous thing I've ever experienced. Okay, so number three. Uh, this one sort of represents a breed more than anything. Uh, I think it's the unique example of a breed. And I'm talking about the Nations Cup Monaro. I'm yes. talking about the Brock 05 427 that won the Bathurst 24 hour in 2003. For me, that represents supercars, the whole breed of that sort of thing. And that was the ultimate of the supercar breed at that time, I think, in the respect. It was, it was slowly stressed. It was the seven litre engine in it, but it did have the 18 inch wheels. It had a sequential shifter before those two things became the norm and the class. Um, and it just went out there and it pounded around for 24 hours, not missing a beat. It was just an incredible display. That weekend was absolutely ridiculous. Obviously got Brock his 10th Enduro win there. 
just a, a very cool bit of kit and really does represent all that supercars because I mean so many of the supercars are very similar they're all got very close DNA but that 427 Monaro just it's something a little bit special for me and look I'm a Ford guy but there's no Fords from here on for me it's all uh really yeah <laughs> yep yep, yep, yep. This might be but, where we have some double up, Mark, you and I, I think. Oh, dear. Mm. But, uh, yeah, lock it in. I love that thing. 427 Monaro. Uh, a car that uh, wins three Australian Touring Car Championships is a pretty serious motor car in my book. And Ian Gagan drove what I think is the most beautiful Mustang that's ever seen in this country, the Mustang 68 model GTA, although he did race it in 67. 67 was a, a, a mammoth race with Norm Beachy at Lakeside. Um, 68... Beachy arrived with the Camaro, Pete beat him at Warwick Farm. And in 69, we went to the very, very first Australian Touring Car Championship Series over a massive five rounds, of which uh, Pete won two of them in the, in the Mustang. It's a glorious car, uh, beautifully restored uh, by uh, David Wall and his family. Uh, I believe it, it's owned actually by, I think someone actually is based in the States. So don't quote me on that, but I don't think David actually owns the car. Magnificent car, dominant in the era. Uh, it, it won three of, of four of Pete's four championships. Uh, just a stunning bit of kit and uh, uh, lovely to see the car here. But but it took on everything Beachy and Bob Jane could throw at it and won three on, three on the trot. Yeah, beautiful stuff. 12 from 12. Mm. No double ups just yet. Number it's two gonna car happen. for me. Was a car that I watched win the very first Bathurst that I watched from start to finish in 1979 as a 12-year-old, and it was the Brock Richards Alex Tirana. It was the year that Brock and Richards they won by six laps. Now I don't know how much of that was attributed to the drivers or to the car, but I do know that you don't win Bathurst by six laps unless you've got one a car that's fast and two. That's reliable. This was a very, very good race car. The Marlboro Holden dealer team car. Won at Calder, Wanneroo and Surface that year. And actually the Alex Tirana in 79 won every race of the Touring Car Championship driven by either Brock, John Harvey or Bob Morris and Jim Richards as well who drove it at Bathurst. So a very exceptional car. My mum had one. And as I said, my very first Bathurst that I watched from start to finish and that one also ingrained in the memory, the Brock Richards 79, Alex Tirana. Tony, just one thing there. It set the lap record, the fast lap of the race, I should say, on the last lap. With just Brock's a rough arm out the, the window. With Brock's arm out the window. I was going to get to that because that's my number two car. The 79 Tirana. Yeah, that's, that's my number two car. Um, one, yeah, incredible. And I grew up in a Holden household. I wasn't born in 1979, unlike you, Shebex, but, uh, or Dale. But um, that car for me is the seminal memory of my childhood, is watching replays of the end of that race, especially. And knowing that that car was so capable to not just win the Bathurst 1000 by six laps, but for mine, it was always the lap record on the last lap that grabbed me. Yeah. And, and I feel like I've been really consistent over my years in talking about motor racing that I just, all I want to see is people ragging racing cars as hard as they can be driven the whole way through a motor race. And we're fortunate in the current Bathurst 1000. That's what we get. You touched on the Craig Lowndes car Shebex earlier on six minutes and one to do a thousand Ks at Bathurst. You are driving as hard as you can for six hours. And that's what I loved about that Brock car was that just to emphasize the point that 
although they were shifting to Commodore the next year, the LX Tirana was far from its use-by date. To go and pop a lap record that wouldn't be beaten for three or four years um, was just an enormous achievement for that uh, A9X Tirana. I've got an LX Tirana. It's definitely not an A9X, but it's sitting up in my shed under several blankets, just waiting for the right time and no COVID conditions to be restored. The or, LX Porsche, or Porsche electronics or that Porsche, need fixing. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. And um, I, I love it to bits. So that car is my number two car in the list. And I got a small suspicion that my number one car might be mentioned before we come back around to me again, Mark. Oh yes, of course. Uh, of course I'll mention it. Actually, I've got to say one of my favorite, uh, Trailers of that bread, and actually, Shebex, you mentioned it. Uh, Bob Morris's that we dragged out for the mm. photo shoot last yeah. year, uh, which won the championship. Uh, obviously, didn't win Bathurst, but uh, yeah, Revel. Pr- pretty agricultural old jigger when you look at them, but uh, it, it got the job done. At uh, a time my- when Bathurst wasn't part of a championship either. Mm. Nah. And I mean, and the 79, back to your point, Shebex, 79. 1,000, it was because everyone else didn't make it to the finish. That's why they had a six-plot margin. It, everyone just fell out. So, right. My number two, the Brock Big Banger VK. Have I broken your heart, Kral? You have. Your beauty. <laughs> you beauty. What, what a beast. I mean, it was just the 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 peak of the breed there, wasn't it? I mean, I, I love Dickie's XE that won the championship there in 84, but it, it ultimately wasn't the, the best of that, those Falcons that Dick ever ran. I mean, you look back at his 81 car, that was probably the best car that he, he ever had in that style of machine. Uh, yeah, but the, the last of the big bangers, Dayglo, Marlboro, the big flares, that's just horn. That is absolutely horn. And, you know, the class was already dead when they came in. It's not like the GTR Nissan that, killed group a mm. group c was already done for and they've just brought this thing out for four races at the end of the year it won three of them and came second in the grand prix support race so it won sandown bathurst and the enduro at surface paradise with peter brock and larry perkins so yeah the last of the big bangers brock with the 84 vk is my number two dale uh, yeah, I reckon uh, it's a great car. Not on my list, but an awesome car. I saw that one too, Richard. Um, my number two is... Well, I've seen it, just not live is, back is, in the day. Is, um, Marcus Ambrose's BA Falcon. Um, this is a car that, that uh, was racing, not when you could win by six laps, but you might have won by six seconds if you were, if you were lucky. Uh, it, it took Ambrose to two championships. Uh, it put the Stone Brothers team on the map. Uh, an absolute, the class car of the field, and he drove it beautifully. He actually didn't bend it at all for nearly two years, or three years actually, until uh, he got involved with Greg Murphy. Then it seemed to crash every time it went out. But the car was was mag- in magnificent uh, in in its in its heyday, um, and absolutely the dominant. Marcus was on top of his form. He announced he was going to the US while driving this car, um, and great to see it restored too, which is a credit to Ross and Jim. Really, really cool to see that yep. thing back. But uh, Beautiful car. Glad they kept it. But I reckon it's that in that year of 2003 and four, uh, this is one that's one of the greats. Yeah, I think that's peak supercars around then. That whole era, the, the personalities yeah. and the rivalries that were involved. I personally preferred the 2003 livery. And I like the 2003 
more because it was that breakthrough year. Ford had been absolutely P nowhere for so long and Ambrose finally came through and, and got one over Scafey, which I, I think was a pretty big deal. So I, I like the 03 livery better than the 04. There it is. Thank <laughs> All right, uh, Tony, insert drum roll here. For our number one. <laughs> oh, yeah, he'll remember, he'll remember to do that for sure. It, won't happen. it will not happen. It will not happen. It won't happen. <laughs> our number ones. Mine, for me, is the Brock 1972 LJ Tirana. Uh, for some reason, I've got an affiliation with Tirana. My mum had three of them before I was 12, so I just absolutely loved the car. This is the whole show, Danny. I was mm. only five years old at the time when he drove this, so I can't say I actually remember him doing anything with it, but he drove Bathurst solo that year for 800 kilometres and nearly did it in under six hours, which is an amazing effort by a man on a wettish day, the first car to do 130 laps in nearly under six hours. For me... My number one car is the Brock 72 LJ Tirana for no other reason than it just, I just love the car. Well, magic car, great selection. I really like that. And I think that win made even more impressive. The rain helped them, no doubt. Yep. But 202 Holden 6 up against the might of Alan Moffat in the GDHO Phase 3 Falcon, which is one of the great touring cars of a generation. Um, for Brock, that that was the race that really put Brock on the landscape, and um, it was his first win, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yep, hundred yeah, percent. And and the last driver to do it solo, so terrific, great result, especially given his higher rated at the time teammate Colin Bond rolled out in the sister car very early on at the top of Mount Panorama. Amazing, he didn't roll down the mountain. We sort of did quite a few meters off the side of the hill in in the sister car. Um, I'm on the Brock theme for my number one. It's, the car's been mentioned, but it, it's the big banger. The VK, the 84 Bathurst winner, is my favourite touring car, my favourite racing car ever in Australia. And year I was born, so it's got a significance for me there. Um, my folks tell stories of that as a however many months I wasn't old at that time. I sat in my dad's lap and watched that whole race start to finish without crying once, apparently. So if it can do that to my to me as a kid, it can do that for your kid as well, Mark. And, Bathurst and, this year, for your child, get onto it, I think, because you're not going to be there. Uh, that's the thing. Wonderful I, car. I thought you were looking for a Bathurst not to cry. I mean, is this the year that you're not going to cry during a Bathurst? Oh, what does happen every now and then. No, no, well, I didn't cry in 84. Maybe I should have because it was significant. But like, like the 79 car, the, the car was amazing, but it was what it was achieved what it achieved was more important because that one, two finish at the end with Skippy Parsons behind the wheel of the 25 car and Brock crew, unlike 79, when he smashing lap records on the final lap, Brock was absolutely walking home on the final lap. And um, Skippy in the sister car was given the call to drive hard, form up, get that one, two finish. And as they got to the bottom of Conrad straight, there comes the 25 in shot and they come across the line in form finish, couple of laps apart. Brock was three laps in front and that one, two finish and that exercised the demons of the 77 forward one, two. So a massive result for Holden, iconic motor race, iconic car. Dayglow Marlboro livery is peak Marlboro in Australian motor racing. That's my number one car. Right. So I'm going a bit left field here for my number one going a bit, 
bit Chebecky style here. It might not technically be the best racing car in the history of Australia, but in my eyes, it's absolute perfection. Uh, 2009 Nikon Super GP. Uh, they didn't get the A1 GP cars there, but a field of old touring cars. Some absolute classics there. Thursday night, they were unloading them off the truck. I was a little AA kid at the time, and I was coming along to cover the event for the magazine, and I was there by myself, and the Bowdens were unloading all their cars. And sitting by itself was uh, Norm Beachy's HT Monaro GDS 350. It was absolutely perfect. What an what a beast. It just looked so good. And I've gone and looked at it again up at the, the Bowden's collection. It is fantastic. It won the Australian Touring Car Championship there in 1970. The first win for Holden in the championship. And it was Norm's fourth championship. So yeah, pretty significant for those things. Obviously, wouldn't didn't have the, the stats of the Mustang. I mean, you could put Alan Moffat's Mustang in there. You could put the Super Falcon in there. Uh, the, the Mustang that Dale mentioned earlier. All those cars are just awesome but in my eyes i just love that non beachy monaro i think that's the the go for number one for me magic uh, no one for me is quite simple there it is oh um, there it is 1970 winning uh, i agree 100 percent with mark it is the most amazing car i think in australian motorsport history um, and we were very fortunate to speak to norm earlier in the year uh, we found out a lot about the build of this car this car was built in about five months uh, at the back of the Brunswick Nissan dealership. Um, it was the Trans Oz. It was the car that took on the might of Trans Am racing cars in Australia. Uh, Bob Jane had a, a 68 GTA. Moffat brought the car in, uh, the Trans at the 69 Trans Am, and Norm built this thing to perfection. Um, Lou Molina took over the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the build of it, absolutely brained them in the championship, uh, had a, had a, a, a Bit of an ordinary start at Calder, won at Bathurst, won the championship convincingly. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't do much after that. Uh, 71 wasn't a good year, and of course, 72, he, he retired the car altogether. Uh, without doubt, I think the car that changed the Australian Touring Car Championship, um, it was a fan favourite. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Richard, but I did see this car as well. I can tell you, when you see <laughs> this car, <laughs> when you see this car, I remember it like yesterday, in a f absolutely chock-a-block sand down with he, Gagan, Moffat and, and Jane on the front straight and Beachy howling this yellow Monaro around. The crowd just went completely AWOL. It was incredible. The car was a monster. It sounded brilliant. Norm drove it like he drove every one of his other cars. It was the instant fan favourite in Australia and without, for mine, the, 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 the greatest car this country's ever seen. There you go. Good Fantastic call. stuff. Yeah. Great work, boys. That was an amazing show. And we'd love your thoughts as well. Hit us up on the socials after you hear this and uh, have a read of the story that's coming out of the race talk as well in regards to it. We'd love your thoughts of your top five. And we'll uh, go through some of those, I think, next week, Richard. Yeah, 17 out of the 20 spots there. So five each. That's not bad. So there's good. really only three we had crossover with. I, that's a pretty good cross-section of Aussie Motorsport right there. We need to do another one of these lists. In a few well, weeks' time, I reckon. Boys? Let us, let us know what you think, folks. Uh, yeah. If you've got a suggestion on what, what we should tackle with one of these, we'll, we'll jump in and do it. Because Favourite drivers, racetracks, I don't know. It'd be worth it. Hey, guys, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it as always. Enjoy the racing this week. We'll talk about it next weekend. See you, or boys. Next week, I should say. Thanks, Cheers. Thank boys. you for joining us right here on The Grid.